and welcome to this episode of Stats, the podcast where we share the accomplishments of the Department of Surgery at Baylor Scott and White Medical Center in Temple, Texas. I am Dr. Lonnie Gentry. My guest today is Dr. Danny Little, the Division Director of Pediatric Surgery. Dr. Little is well known not only for his leadership as a surgeon, but also for the many morale-building events he organizes, for his own athletic prowess in completing the Ironman Texas numerous times, and most recently for his appointment as a Lieutenant Commander in the U.S. Naval Reserve. Today we talk with Dr. Little about all these things and more. Dr. Little, welcome to STATS. Dr. Gentry, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, looking forward to our discussion. I've listened to the two previous podcasts and I really find them to be very enlightening. Great. Well, before we jump into the subjects I mentioned, help us get to know you better. Tell us about your decision to become a doctor, where you trained, and what brought you to Temple 13 years ago. So like many physicians, uh, I had a lot of medical experiences when I was younger. I was actually born with a cleft lip and many of my early medical experiences and memories as a youth had to do with having surgery, following visits, seeing doctors. I was in and out of my family practice doctor every month to see him with ear infections. So all I knew was doctors and nurses and shots. Uh, so that was a big part of my my youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember uh, probably my first recollection of when would I become a doctor occurred in sixth grade when we were told to write a theme for what we would become. And I still have this, and it says, Dr. Little, uh, the first to perform a brain transplant. <laughs> a bit ambitious, <laughs> perhaps, but I still have it, and I guess that's probably when I really started to galvanize my thoughts that maybe I would become a doctor, and that would be great. Um, I chose to come to Scott & White uh, as my number one choice for residency. I was very excited to be here, and that's probably in part uh, to an experience I had in medical school. All students where I did medical school had to go to a small town for one month to see what small town Oklahoma medicine was like. And just so happens, the new hot to trot surgeon in my small town was a recent graduate from this program. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated. This this uh, young surgeon was doing vascular surgery, was doing minimally invasive surgery, did some ENT work. And I was really very impressed with the breadth of the skill that that individual had. And he encouraged me to come down here and take a look. And so I did. I matched here, and it was a great experience. I loved my time as a surgical resident. I can say I was well-trained and happy. And those two don't always go together with residency, but it was a great experience, and I was very fortunate. Uh So you left after residency, but then you came back. I did. uh, So I wanted to become a pediatric surgeon. And the road to that is never linear. It's never straight. It's challenging. It's probably one of the harder things to to become from general surgery. So I went to Kansas City Children's Hospital and did a year of critical care, which was awesome. It was big, something I hadn't seen before, had a great experience. That was one year. Then I went to Indiana for two years for my official pediatric surgery training. And that was that was quite challenging. As an example, uh, for five years as a resident at this program, I did 1,100 cases. In two years, as a fellow in Indiana, I did 1,300. So half the time, and actually more cases performed. Uh-huh. So it was a, a pressure cooker, but in the best, really the best way possible. Love my time. An interesting fact that a lot of folks don't know about me that actually kind of ties into my plans as a sixth grade youth was I had additional plans after Indiana to do transplant fellowship. Had all uh-huh. ranged. I was going to go to Miami. 
I worked with a multivisceral transplant surgeon. Kansas City had actually given me a contract hmm. with a signing bonus. It was in my bag for six months. I was ready to go, and something told me that it just wasn't the right path for me. And that was a very strong message that I tried to uh, I tried to repel against a little bit. Or I, I wasn't listening to it, but it kept on coming back to me. So eventually, decided that was not my path. I was going to stick with pediatric surgery, and that was going to be my focus. And that's probably what allowed student education and resident education to enter my career, whereas before it probably wouldn't have. Uh-huh. Well, we'll talk some more about that in a minute. That's a great background. I mentioned earlier that you're well-known here at the hospital for the many morale-building events that you organize. Can you tell us about some of these events, the one that's coming up next, and why you consider them important? Sure. Sometimes in the hospital setting, I, I wonder if we have things backwards. We, we get so focused on the budget, the RVUs, the expectations, the academic grids, the, uh, the performance, what we can do for the department and the institution, and all those things are super important, and we will be defined and, and judged based on that to some degree. However, what is also equally important is setting up an environment of trust, of belonging, of caring, a culture that says we value you as a person for what you do outside the hospital for as much as what you do inside the hospital. So this became an interest of mine four or five years ago, and I wanted to see what kind of difference could I make in the lives of people that were really looking for a sense of belonging, a simple thank you, maybe a challenge. And the initial morale boosting activity was something known as the Wildcat Challenge. (laughs) And what we would do as a group of us, uh, 10 to 15, would get together on Wednesdays, and we would do a, a mini MRF or a mini triathlon where we would we would bike a distance of five miles, and we would do some push-ups and sit-ups and planks and then run for a mile and then just have some time together. And that was the key. I, I do feel very strongly that we need to build loyalty and trust, and that line needs to outpace any types of cynicism or fear or regret because both of those lines are present in all of our lives. But if we can build that line of trust and belonging, that's actually good for us as people, and it's good for the institution. Uh, moving forward, uh, we started focusing on the residents, and the residents are really the driving force. They are our workers. Uh, they're the best part of my job. So simple thank yous. We buy the chief resident a textbook at the end of the rotation. Thank you. Uh, we actually give them a pin that goes on their white coat. It's a pewter pin. That's a captain's will. They're the captains of the ship. Uh-huh. That's presented publicly. Uh, we also give our mid-level resident another pin that's a choo-choo train because they're just <laughs> they're working. <laughs> they're getting from place A to B. It's a simple thank uh-huh. you. And so we focus on the residents. We focused on uh, the staff. Uh, moving forward, uh, this October, just in one month, there's a group of 15 of us that have decided to uh, inflict a lot of pain on ourselves <laughs> in a challenge to do the rim-to-rim Grand Canyon experience. We're going to start the North Rim. We're going to go deep in the canyon, and we hope to come out the south side. It's 24 miles. It's probably one of the bigger challenges that most of us have faced, but it's not necessarily the destination that's critical. Yes, we need to finish. we got to get ourselves out. But the journey along the way, the the weekend training sessions that we have with each other, that's so powerful. It's meaningful. There's fellowship there. People are excited about it. And eventually we'll get to the canyon, but along the way we've learned a lot about ourselves and each other. 
So it's really many events that's culminating in this long weekend at the canyon. I think so. And there's uh, some of the team members are already talking about next year. And I don't know what next year is. <laughs> this year we're going to get through the Grand Canyon and then we'll see what next year looks like. It sounds like fun. Something I would enjoy doing. I think it's going to be great. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how many people. In fact, uh, just today I had people come up to me and ask, can I be involved? Or maybe next year. And there's a kind of a swell of anticipation and excitement about future activities. So uh-huh. we'll see what next year looks like. Those are great things. Great things to look forward to. Dr. Little, you're on the Texas Medical Board, on the Texas EMS Trauma and Acute Care Foundation Board of Directors, and you were recently appointed a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve. How do these positions fit into your personal career vision? I think as I answer that question, the first thing that fits is can I satisfy my most important job as being a good husband and being a good father. And I, and I hope I've done well with that. That's very important to me. One of the reasons I came back to this institution is the ability and the trust that I'd be able to be most effective at the most important jobs and equally as effective at my job in the hospital. Early on, I had a lot of opportunities to be in leadership, associate program director, division director for Pete surgery, trauma medical director, and this was really exciting. I was young. Most of these opportunities come to surgeons at the twilight of their career. But for me here, it came pretty early, and that was super exciting. About five years ago, I had a strong sense and feeling that I needed to redefine what the backside of my career was going to look like. And maybe what I thought I would do, uh, ascension through the hospital system, leadership opportunities in the hospital system, that seemed like the right path at one point. But it didn't seem like the right path anymore. I wasn't as excited about it. I didn't feel fulfilled or challenged. And so I started looking at other opportunities. Now, I will tell you, a lot of my friends will say that sounds a lot like a midlife crisis. (laughs) And I understand (laughs) that. But I look at it as something deeper, more like a midlife awakening. Uh This is my career. The person most interested in my career is myself. And I need to direct my career in the ways I see fit. Uh, That started with Texas EMS, where I became a surveyor. I've done about 50 surveys across the state of Texas with level three and four NICUs and trauma programs. I feel very excited to go to place to make sure these programs are maintaining norms and give them some counseling and mentorship along the way. That's very satisfying, and, and perhaps I've indirectly had role in their patients getting better moving forward. Uh, recently, I began working with the Texas Medical Board, uh, simply reviewing cases where uh, complaints are made against physicians. And the ones I reviewed, quite honestly, are a bit frivolous. And I'm sure in time, uh, those will become more and more serious. But uh, the ability to really to look at a case and peer review it and, and try to support uh, physicians as best I can, or if there needs to be counseling, to certainly recommend that, is also is really exciting. But I really think the, the key thing I did in my career was, was how can I be a part of the greatest military force in the world? And that's the United States and military, in my case, United States Naval Forces. I'm a reservist. Um, I'm a lieutenant commander, which is an 04, for people that don't know uh, reserve work. 04 is considered the top of the JV team, I guess. So (laughs) if I'm promoted in the next year or two to commander, I hope to be uh, be considered on the varsity team at that Uh point. But it's been great. I spent five weeks in uh, Rhode Island this February doing 
basically boot camp for officers with young folks. Push-ups, set-ups, running, training, and, and I found that to be great. Learning more about the military, learning how I can assist soldiers with emotional issues, PTSD, physical issues. And that's been uh, awesome. Uh, people often ask me, are you worried about deployment? Sure, I am. Uh, I'm worried about what that would do to my partners, the department, but I also realize if that time comes, I'm needed and I have skills uh, that can be beneficial to people out there that are serving our great country. Great. So kind of an aside question here. Did you feel like you were prepared athletically for boot camp? As much as any 48-year-old could be. I was, <laughs> I was convinced I'd be the oldest, but I wasn't. Is that right? <laughs> there were two chaplains that were actually older than me. But most of the students are right out of law school, uh, right out of med school. They're 27, 28. And I think uh, they felt maybe a little inspired because I was giving it my all. Uh-huh. Now, they're all probably is a little bit better than my all. But when they saw that I was giving a full effort, uh, they they wanted to give a full effort. It was February. It's Newport. It's like 20 degrees. It's cold. There's snow everywhere. And our chiefs would take us to the sand pit, which is a bad place to go. Mm-hmm. It's wet. It's sandy, and you know what's going to happen there. Hard, hard PT. But before you get to the sand pit, they're going to make you crawl to 50 yards of goose excrement. Oh, hands boy. and knees, suffering, crawling, and then go to the pit and do every type of PT you can think about. Now, I can't say I was doing all that well, but the people to the right of me and the people to the left of me knew I was trying really hard. Uh-huh. And I think that made them try a little hard, too. How about that? You're very involved in educating medical students and residents. You've mentioned that already. What motivates you to devote your time to training the next generation of physicians? It's fun. It's great. It's exciting. Uh, I do believe that surgical immortality can only happen through the prism of education. At some point, my effect as a surgeon, which is very linear, I do a case, I move on. Next case comes in, I move on. That's very linear. But your ability to interact with young minds and talent becomes exponential. So I've been fortunate uh, that Dr. Papa has allowed me to be the surgery clerkship director for about 10 years now. And I think that's probably been one of the highlights of my career. So I love doing that. It reminds me of why I want to become a physician or became a physician. Sometimes it's easy for us to kind of get down on ourselves or, or worry about the call burden or this or that. And then you plug a third-year medical student to your side that just wants to listen and learn and challenge you and question you, and I think that's I think it's really great. So I really have enjoyed that role. It's made me a better physician, and, and hopefully along the way, I've given the students something to think about. I'll tell you this, Dr. Gentry, at the end of every clerkship, I tell the students the same thing. I tell them, I'm, I'm proud of you, glad you had this experience. I know it's not been easy, but I want you to think about how to become a great educator. There are a lot of people in our lives that come into our lives, and perhaps they're positive experiences, sometimes they're negative experiences. And as a student, I know you have a lot of academic fatigue. And I know residents have a lot of physical fatigue. And as an attending, sometimes I have emotional fatigue. And all those are very important, and they can, they can be difficult for us. But we have to learn how to balance those things to become the best physician that we want to become moving forward. And yes, I'd like the students to remember how to manage cholangitis, but most importantly, I want them to remember why they got into medicine and not let the various phases of exhaustion turn them into something that they don't want to become. I want them to become good humans, 
good doctors, confident, and be the best they can be. I'm sure they appreciate the time they have with you very much. I mentioned earlier that you've competed in a number of athletic events, including the Texas Ironman. Several times you've done that, I think. What motivates you to participate in these challenging athletic events, and how do you find the time to train as a busy surgeon? Uh, sometimes I'm wondering why I train for these events. <laughs> I don't sometimes, though. I would credit Richard Goat for all this. Uh, I call him the legend. So, of course, he's a pediatric podiatrist, and and he just keeps killing it and working hard and being the best version of himself. I do think as we get older, it's important to not just go to the gym and play on Facebook, but go to the gym with a purpose, a focus, something you're you're really leaning towards, and you're going to focus on a certain activity. So, uh, he and I have trained for a couple of half Ironmans, which is 70 miles, swimming, biking, running. And, and I don't really know if that's for me anymore. <laughs> I think I've met my my physiological max. But I so have appreciated him pushing me to to do big things and have big ideas, whether it's the Grand Canyon, whether it's uh, triathlon work, or whatever else comes uh, down the pike. I think it's always important to think about where we are or where we were yesterday and kind of where we are today. And can we be just a little bit better tomorrow? It's so easy in our life as surgeons to do great work at the hospital, work hard all day, go home, eat dinner, sit on couch, hit repeat. Mm-hmm. Do the same thing the next day. Mm-hmm. As you go each day like that, quickly weeks turn into months and months turn into years. And you look back and you realize, I've had a great career, but I haven't really developed myself in any other way. As I mentioned before, my career is most important to me, and I need to take control of that. And doing these athletic events, although it's a bit crazy, and I, I think my kids, in fact, my daughter told me yesterday, no more of that, Dad. <laughs> we're, we're done going to Galveston, and and I think she's probably right about that. Uh, but, you know, it's helped me be maybe the best version of myself, and I think that's okay. Sure. Yeah. You've seen a lot in your career, and I'm sure you'll see a lot more both in pediatric surgery generally and specifically here at Baylor Scott and White Medical Center in Temple. Reflect with us on how far pediatric surgery has come, as well as how far pediatrics has come here at the hospital. It's been marvelous and amazing to see what has happened to children's health care in Central Texas. Now, a lot of the folks listening to this podcast are relatively new to the department, but I remember what it was like with Dr. Thomas myself, young residents on pediatric surgery. We'd have five or six patients. Our hospital wasn't really a hospital. It just was a a floor in a big hospital. There wasn't really an identity. I really credit leadership. I credit Dr. Beerham, and I credit credit people like Dr. Custer. Dr. Custer came here in 1989 uh, as the first pediatric surgeon ever to Scott White, and that was a bold choice. That would not have been the choice that most fellows would have done. He wanted to start something. I came here as a resident, and, and I learned a lot about uh, a lot about the good work and a lot about pediatric surgery. And I wanted to be a part of that, and I wanted to help it continue to grow. So fast forward from when I came back, flying train to today, we have a freestanding children's hospital. That didn't just happen. I mean, that was very well thought out and structured and organized. We're actually the smallest city in the country with the freestanding children's hospital. Sioux Falls, every now and then, gets smaller than us. But right now, I think we're smaller than Sioux Falls. So uh, we win. What an incredible benefit for the community. Have a freestanding children's hospital in your back 
backyard than a clinic right next door, especially a clinic. Um, as a division director of Pete Surgery, it's been very important for me to organize our penetration. I think we need to be uh, locally dominant and regionally influential. So we've established clinics in College Station, Round Rock, Colleen, and Waco. We actually were at Abilene a few years ago as well. So kind of pushing McLean's out there even further. And now you look at our group. We've gone from one surgeon. Now we're four. We're hiring another one in January. We have a nurse practitioner. Uh, Dr. Beer, Dr. Jala, Dr. Papa, a lot of key leaders in the institution have, have built a pediatric care where this is a destination place for people that want to have an impactful career. I'm really thankful to be just a small part of that. But a lot of this uh, gets back to inflection points in our career. I've certainly had several inflection points, whether, whether it's me as a young resident here thinking, gosh, maybe maybe I should do Pete surgery and, and Dr. Custer and Dr. Cooney uh, supporting me. Uh-huh. Um, there's a fun story I like to tell where a previous resident had started a research project looking at laparoscopic versus open appendectomy in children. It was the first prospective randomized study in children. And that resident was leaving the program. He was graduating. The results were just sitting on the table. No one was doing anything with a landmark study. I got involved. And I got supported. I got to present that. I got to publish it. It became an inflection point in my career. Coming to Scott and White, I was going to be a small-town general surgeon. That's what Scott and White produced. Not a lot of folks did fellowships. They produced well-trained, competent, safe surgeons. And that's what I was going to be. Inflection point. Pete surgery. Single event changed the direction of my career. Uh-huh. You know, I get to Kansas City, I get to Indiana, I have this awesome opportunity to go back and be a transplant surgeon. My dream job, the job I thought about as a sixth grader writing my theme <laughs> for my English teacher, it's there. It's on a platter. Signing bonus, contract. Something wasn't right. Uh-huh. Student education became part of my narrative and, and I gave up transplant. Now, lastly, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, the ability to re- redefine my career with the, the Navy, uh, the Texas Medical Board, uh, TTAF, trying to contribute in ways that I feel are beneficial and positive. And so being here is an inflection point of my career, being part of a young building clinic, surf enterprise, hospital. It's unique. The culture is very good. Culture is so important. Uh, support of people, trusting people, building trust, building an environment where people want to be their best. That's something I'd like to, I know we're you know, nearing the end here, but something I'd like folks to, to think about is, are we doing what we need to do to support the people that work with us and for us? It's very easy to think, I'm in charge of them. Well, you're not really in charge of them. I mean, it is our charge to take care of them, to allow them to be their best. Dr. Stagg, Dr. Wills, Bryce, Dr. Fitzwater, it is my job to help them become the best versions of themselves. And sometimes that simply means get out of the way. Sometimes it means a phone call after a difficult case, maybe a support, supporting um, conference, lunch. But people want to be the best versions of themselves. And my job is to show that I trust them and to support them. And, and then we all win. Uh, as a leader, I win when my people do the best that they can do. So fortunate to have those very talented surgeons working with me, not for me, but with me. And I think uh, what we've been able to do is give Central Texas tertiary and quaternary care, which otherwise they'd have to travel a long ways for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've heard you mention emotional intelligence. 
it's obviously important to you. Is this something you were aware of early on? Did you come to be aware of it later in your career? And how would you say that's that awareness has impacted your career? That's so important. Thank you for that topic. So uh, a lot of credit to Dr. Papa. He put together uh, quite a symposium education on that a few years ago. But how it became important in my life is just making repeated mistakes <laughs> all over the time. <laughs> so, you know, they don't teach you this in residency. And they don't teach you this when you're a young staff. Uh, you're taught do cases, take care of patients, have vision, push, be an advocate. But somewhere along the line, you need to realize that relationships are really important. In fact, most of our success as a surgeon will probably happen outside the operating room. 60%, 80%, it's hard to quantify. But the relationships that we build with the nurses, uh, with my boss, or the people that report to me, uh, with administrators, those relationships will actually fuel greater success than me doing a simple appendectomy on a healthy child. So on my desk, I have a lot of books on emotional intelligence. I look at them all the time, <laughs> and sometimes I read them. Uh, but that's something that's become very important to me, that we need to judge ourselves and take uh, care of our own selves, making sure we're being the best best version of ourselves, and, and we we're able to better contribute when we do that. And we're not often taught that early on. So Dr. Papa put together some symposiums a few years ago. The entire OR took them. I thought they were fantastic. I have since taken part of that uh, education and in, in given it to medical students. So all the medical students on this campus, when they're on surgery rotation, will go through a series of personality evaluations, professionalism development, conflict resolution, career building, the things that are kind of soft skills. My gosh, I'm telling you, they are so important to our livelihoods and our success. I learned this the hard way, <laughs> and but I hope I'm doing better. Most of us do. <laughs> You're probably right, and, and maybe I'm able to encourage others to just think a little bit about um, yourself and uh, making sure you're being the best version of yourself. Uh-huh. Well, that's obviously a lesson learned for you. Are there some other lessons learned that you'd like to share with us? Great question. So first and foremost, it's easy to lose sight of where you're going. So often, we spend every day just trying to put out the fire that's right in front of our feet. And you know there's probably a couple other fires down the road. But we don't think about, what's the next month look like? What's next year look like? I'm just worried about getting through the day. i got to put out the fire in front of me. So not losing sight of where we're going. Such an important uh, message. Secondly, vision. I think leaders must possess good vision, but leaders also need to realize that it may take others a while to catch up to their vision, and that is not a fault of them. Maybe it's a fault of the leader for not sharing their vision and and welcoming other people's ideas. And I learned that the hard way at the Children's Hospital. We, We started Children's Hospital from nothing, and I was super excited about it, and I had to learn that other people took a while to get excited about it, and that's uh, that's okay. And I guess lastly, that Something I think is so important, and I write this in every textbook of every resident as I give them their gift following their rotation on pediatric surgery. I want them to trust their skills. They're going to be in some difficult times, so they're going to question themselves. They're well-trained. Trust their skills. Secondly, I want them to love their patients. That sounds like such an obvious thing. I'm telling you, it's easy to forget that we need to love our patients, and our patients need to feel that love. It's so easy to think about patients as an inconvenience or something we need to check off on our list of things to do today. But just spending time with them and talking with them 
that's the best part of the day. That's so great. And lastly, uh, you learn this the older you get, seek mentorship, no matter how old you are. That seems like something that almost be reserved for a younger surgeon or a resident. But actually, it's probably the older surgeons that need it just as much as the younger surgeons. So being willing to trust your skills, love your patients, and seek mentorship. For me, those are three defining things we can do to really be the best versions of ourselves and reach our potential. Well, Dr. Little, thanks so much for talking with me today. And thanks for being so vulnerable in some of the things you've shared today. They've been really interesting to me, and I've enjoyed talking to you very much. I wish you the best going forward. Dr. Gentry, thank you so much. Uh, It's been great, and looking forward to seeing more of these podcasts or listening to them. I think it's really important work, and uh, we'll have to give you an update after the 15 of us get out of the Grand Canyon. Yes, that would be a great podcast. That concludes this episode of Stats. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Sharing the Accomplishments of Temple Surgery.